A belief in a literal 1,000-year kingdom is fiction too childish to need refutation. That's a John Calvin quote. And yet, Yeshua came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But what exactly is the kingdom? And what happened to the message? Why did the church lose that hope? Could it have been because the kingdom is too Jewish? Well, actually, their theologians took it away. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Roots Design, created in conjunction with Messiah Magazine, a free publication in print or online at messiahmagazine.org. Put your hand and mind together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. My name is Damian Eisner, along with my co-host, Ruben Ramos. He's more than my co-host. He's my friend. How are you, Ruben? Oh, that makes me feel special, man. Oh, good. <laughs> I appreciate that. my purpose that. in life. <laughs> yeah, man. So I'm excited today because we're introducing another Messiah Podcast Selects. And today we're featuring really a key lecture that defines one of First Fruits of Zion's focal points, which is, of course, the kingdom. If you've been listening to Messiah podcast at all, you know that the kingdom is a, a central message. And this lecture really encompasses that idea. I'm glad you said one of First Roots Design's focal points, because, you know, I like to think we're promoting all kinds of new ways of thinking. And mm. But as you said, our work is centered on the kingdom. It's the central component of our vision statement, daily laboring toward the kingdom of heaven, a promise of what is to come. We borrowed some of that from Isaiah, but it's pretty good. <laughs> so in Mark 1, 14, there's really interesting verse. It says, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the reason I bring this up is because we see Jesus preaching what the writer of Mark calls the gospel of God, which of course brings up a question, what is the gospel of God? But perhaps even more important to note is that this is found in Mark 1, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And yet here he is preaching the good news. It really of note is it's before his death and resurrection. Yeah. So, so what does that say? What does that tell you about what the definition of the gospel? Yeah, well, according to Mark, anyways, it seems to be centrally related to the concepts of the kingdom and repentance. Maybe it's just me, but I agree with Mark, and I agree with you. I think you're, I think you're right on. The curious thing is that, uh, sadly, I think most of the the view uh, that the that the church probably holds and the church is sort of a that uh, nothing is monolithic but that mm. the crux of the gospel is personal salvation you know so that right. the, the gospel is that a person can go to heaven when they die and while there may be a, a vague idea somewhere in there that yeshua jesus comes to reign in jerusalem most christians they don't even really 
envision themselves being part of that time period. But from the verse you just read, it seems like there could be something missing, which I hear from all kinds of first roots of Zion people. I was, there was something missing, but like right. you said earlier, this is, this is the central message of Jesus and also yes, of first roots of Zion. So we wanted to share a lecture with you, our podcast audience that Daniel Lancaster gave at our annual Malchut conference in 2020. Yeah. Just for people um, who are not familiar uh, Malchut is actually the uh, the Hebrew word for kingdom, and it's our annual conference, which is coming up fairly soon. So Malchut is the conference of the annual summit of our supporters, First Roots of Zion supporters, and the leaders of our small group Bible study program called Torah Club. If any of our listeners are on the fence about signing up to become an FFOZ friend, now is definitely time to do so so that you can attend this year's conference in Dallas. Yeah, it's it's in Dallas. It's in February, so it's a little ways away, February 20th through the 22nd. Space is filling up fast. If you're a supporter, we want to see you, so sign up and come to Malhud. If you're not, you can find out how to become a supporter of First Roots of Zion. Uh, in the show notes, we've got a helpful link to our FFOZ friends page, friends.ffoz.org. So this lecture, speaking of Malhut, was presented by the First Roots Design Director of Education, Daniel Lancaster, as I said, at Malhut 2020. It focuses our hope on the final redemption and what it's doing here so well is arguing for a premillennial interpretation of the coming of Messiah. It also explores the history of Christianity's amillennial or amillennial eschatology using quotations from some ancient sources and some modern ones like N.T. Wright, as we'll try to figure out how the church fathers lost sight of the kingdom and the original message of the gospel. So Reuben and I are going to share some thoughts afterwards quickly, but sit back, relax, enjoy this lecture titled The Lost Kingdom, and with God's help, we'll find it. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. Let's make sure that everybody knows what this means, what the word malkut means. It's closely related to the Hebrew word melek. You know melek? Yes, king, right? So Yeshua is melech HaMashiach. King Messiah, the anointed king, he is the king. And what does the king need? A king needs a kingdom. So Yeshua came proclaiming the message of the good news about his kingdom, about his Malkut. So the word Malkut means kingdom. Or, you know, actually, more literally, it means reign, his reign. So Yeshua referred to his kingdom as the Malkut Shemayim, the kingdom of heaven. And this is where the confusion begins. The kingdom of heaven. This was his good news message. This is the gospel. The message of the gospel was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was all about this message and all about this, uh, all about the kingdom. It's the center. And that's why on the day of his ascension, 
his disciples asked him, and this was the question, Master, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the Malkut to Israel? In other words, now that we've gone through all of this, are you finally ready to make good on what you've been saying for the last three years? Are you going to bring the kingdom you've been talking about? They're eager to see the prophecies of the Tanakh, the prophecies about Israel and the restoration of Israel fulfilled. They believe they have found the Messiah. They believe Yeshua is the Messiah, the King, so they're ready to see the kingdom. And Yeshua replies affirmatively. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but that's a yes. That's a yes. The kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. We just don't, we're not revealing the time and the season. Now, since that day, it's turned out, as times and seasons have rolled by, that most of his followers would prefer if he didn't restore the kingdom to Israel. In fact, it turns out that the Malkut, the kingdom of heaven, is a little too Jewish for most of his followers. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. This gospel message, this gospel message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It points towards this coming kingdom. And almost, if you look through the gospels, read through the gospels with this this in view, almost all of Yeshua's teachings are focused on this. I mean, he taught us to pray. What's the prayer? The prayer, the petition he taught us, let your kingdom come. That, that's, what we're, that's the prayer that's supposed to be on our lips that we're asking God to bring the kingdom. And his parables, how do they begin? Typically a parable begins like this. To what can it be compared? The kingdom of heaven can be compared to and so forth, right? So what is the kingdom? Now the problem is where the confusion begins is the term kingdom of heaven. Don't let the term kingdom of heaven fool you. That's just Jewish speak for the kingdom of God. Heaven is a, circumlo a circumlocution for God's name. It's not a place name. It's being used in this context as, as just a way of saying God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's why Mark actually like just goes right straight to it and translates it out as kingdom of God. So the kingdom of heaven does not mean the kingdom that is up in heaven. You see the difference? You see the distinction I'm making here? Yeshua taught us to pray for the kingdom here on earth so that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is where? Here on earth, he says. And you might think, yeah, okay, yeah, but what about, when, uh, what about in John 18 when, uh, when he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world? Or what are you going to do with that, right? Well, that means his authority is not derived from this world. Where is his authority derived? The kingdom is of heaven, like when Paul says, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. My kingdom is not of this world. But that doesn't mean it's not in this world, the kingdom is here on earth. In, te in the teaching of Yeshua, then, the kingdom of heaven, it turns out, 
is nearly synonymous with the term messianic era. So the kingdom is the coming future era of universal peace when the Messiah will subjugate Israel's enemies and all nations, occupy the throne of David in Jerusalem, and bring about an age of utopia predicted by the prophets of Israel. According to the prophets, it looks like this. During the kingdom, the scattered exiles of the Jewish people will all be gathered back to the land of Israel. The nation of Israel will be established as the first among all nations. The light of the revelation will shine forth from the holy city of Jerusalem, and all nations will come up to Jerusalem to honor the king and to keep the biblical festivals and the Sabbaths. The Torah will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and in that day the prophets say the temple will be rebuilt as a house of prayer for all nations in Jerusalem. Universal peace and spiritual revelation will flow from Jerusalem like a river of life. The wolf will lie down and dwell with the lamb. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So says Isaiah. In the kingdom, the Satan will be bound. The evil inclination in man's heart will be subdued. And the Lord will purify his people. He will take away the stony heart, the uncircumcised heart, and create a new heart and create within us a new spirit. And he will write his Torah on our hearts. He will place his spirit in us. The kingdom will be the knowledge of God poured out universally. The spirit of the Lord will be poured out on all flesh. And it says they will all know him from the least to the greatest. In the kingdom, the resurrected righteous will walk among the living and among the mortal. And we will eat at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there will be song and dance and music in the streets of Jerusalem. And there will be weddings, as it says in Jeremiah. The voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. That's why the kingdom is called the wedding supper of the Lamb, the banquet of Messiah, the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at which the righteous dine. And Yeshua eats and drinks again with his disciples as he promised, saying, I will not eat it again, I will not drink it again until I do so anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The kingdom will also be a time of miraculous fertility. Every man sitting under his own vine and fig tree, the prophets predict new wine, grain, oil abounding, the hills dripping with sweet wine. The sages embellish, embellish these uh, prophecies with predictions about giant grapes. How big? You'll need a wheelbarrow for one single grape. The abundance of wine in the Messianic era will be such that 
Well, Yeshua alluded to this, didn't he, when he changed the water to wine at Cana, he told his disciples, and then when he told his disciples at his last Seder, I'll drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what he was talking about when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of this, that's the message of the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. He was talking about the future restoration of Israel. He was talking about the fulfillment of all the biblical prophecies, a literal fulfillment of the prophecies in the Bible. And this is the kingdom of which he said, seek first the kingdom. This is what he was talking about when he said we should seek first the kingdom. This is the kingdom that he told us to seek, to enter, to ask, and to seek, and to knock, and to enter in through the narrow gate, and so forth. But please notice, he was talking about a kingdom that is part of this world. It's not up in heaven. It's here on earth, in the world that we live in today. You should think of it, you should think of it as a portal to the next world. The transition from this world of flesh and blood to the world of the resurrected, the world of permanence, the world of immortality, the world to come, olam haba. But the kingdom itself, the kingdom belongs to this physical reality, this physical world as we know it. It's distinct from the new heavens and the new earth of the world to come. And I want to make sure that you've got this straight. We're looking at two future eras connected with the coming of the Messiah. First of all, the Messianic era, the kingdom. This is the utopian era that occupies a place in our current world of physicality. This is followed by the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come, which we also refer to as an eternity because it's the unchanging state of the resurrected. This is the new Jerusalem that descends like a bride. Do you see the difference? Sometimes the two concepts are conflated in rabbinic literature, also in biblical prophecy, and even in the New Testament at times. For example, in the book of Hebrews, there's, you know, the book of Hebrews pretty much skips over uh, the Messianic era and goes straight to the world to come. But before the new heaven and the new earth, before the final judgment, The Messiah comes and begins the Messianic era and the resurrection of the righteous. Not the resurrection of everyone. It's called the first resurrection. Only the resurrection of the righteous, those in Messiah, in conjunction with the ingathering of the exiles. The book of Revelation puts it this way. They came to life, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So you see what I'm doing here. I'm showing you a before and an after. The Messianic era, this kingdom, this utopian era of world peace and prosperity and heightened spirituality when Israel is restored and the king of Israel, the son of David, rules the nations. That's part of our world. During the kingdom, it's an incredible thing. Human beings are alive 
and carry on with their eating and their drinking, each man under his own vine and fig tree, as I mentioned, and humanity keeps, keeps on going, giving and taking in marriage. It's a period of time called the banquet. This is, this is, uh, the, this is, this is the, um, the thousand years. What do you say? The millennium. That's the word I'm looking for. The millennium. But the messianic era, the millennium, concludes with a transition to what we call the general resurrection, the final judgment, the book of life, the book of death, the transition then to the world to come. As it says in the book of Revelation, and when the thousand years are ended, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now we enter a different state called Olam Haba, the world to come. Ultimately then, this current world as we know it is subsumed and resurrected into the world to come. The new heavens and the new earth. A resurrection of reality into a new reality of which our master's resurrection was the first token, first fruits of the resurrection. And regarding the world to come, what can we say? It is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So to recapitulate this eschatology, the gospel message is the message of the kingdom, the Malkut. This is the goal of Yeshua's teaching. Both the kingdom and the world to come because the one leads to the next. The one is a transition to the next. So the teachings of Yeshua, the teachings of the apostles, what are they for? They are meant to guide us safely into that coming kingdom and into eternal life. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, we already knew all that. <laughs> but I'm telling you this today because it's actually a radical message that runs contrary to the majority of traditional theology on this subject. In fact, for most of church history, the teaching about a literal kingdom era, as I just spelled it out for you, and a literal fulfillment of the biblical prophecies, a literal kingdom on earth, for most of church history, that's been considered to be heretical. There are more than one billion Christians in the world today. Most of them have never heard of the kingdom, at least not in this sense. Instead, when they hear about the kingdom of heaven, what do they think? They assume that you mean going to heaven when you die. They assume that you're talking about the world of souls, the afterlife, or heaven in the sky. Or, alternatively, they might assume that by kingdom of heaven, you just mean the church here on earth, right? That the church is the kingdom. But aside from the dispensationalists, 
is dispensational theology does make room for a dispensation called the kingdom dispensation. Aside from dispensationalists, most Christians have never even heard that the kingdom is the messianic era, which is astonishing. Never heard of a messianic era. Never heard of a thousand-year reign that begins with the second coming of Messiah. I find it interesting that the three-self church in China, which is the government church, it's the, it's the state church that's the uh, 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 sanctioned by the, by the government in China, is allowed to have a Bible with one book removed. Do you know what book it is that's removed? The book of Revelation. Why? Because it's subversive to talk about another kingdom. Stop and think about the irony of this. Our master came declaring one central message. He had one message. What was the message? His message was, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek first to enter the kingdom. Make it your top priority. Repent to enter the kingdom. And when you pray, ask God to send the kingdom. That's his main message. And today, the vast majority of his followers have no idea what the kingdom is or that Yeshua even taught about something called the kingdom. How is that? How did this happen? Somehow, we lost the kingdom. Lost the whole idea. And to me, that seems like kind of a big deal. If we're Jesus followers. If we're Yeshua followers. All right, so before we go any further, just going to throw out two theological terms here. This is easy, easy stuff, easy stuff. Two words. Premillennial, amillennial. Okay, premillennial, what does it mean? It means it's, it's the belief that, that Yeshua uh, returns to reign on earth for a thousand years before the final judgment in the world to come, as I just described to you, okay? Amillennial, on the other hand, what does it mean? Amillennial, the belief that there is no millennium, that there is no literal reign of the Messiah in this world no kingdom, so to speak. Amillennialism says there's no future literal kingdom. Instead, according to amillennialism, the church is the kingdom. Amillennialism says the kingdom age started at the ascension of Yeshua and it will come to an end with his return when he will judge the living and the dead and this world ends. And that is where the vast majority of the church falls into this latter category because somehow we lost the concept of the kingdom. How is this possible? How did it happen? How did the church lose the main teaching of Yeshua, the message of the kingdom? I, I decided to figure it out. I started looking into the church fathers to try to piece together the, the, the puzzle, to follow the clues. And I found that the early apostolic fathers, the church uh, fathers uh, from the, the first centuries after, after the apostles, were by and large premillennial. That is, they believed in a literal coming thousand-year reign of Messiah in keeping with what it says in the book of Revelation, in keeping with the idea that the seventh day symbolized the coming kingdom, 
that the Sabbath was a, a sign and a symbol of the coming kingdom, as it says in 1 Peter, as it says in Psalm 95, uh, with a, w- w- a thousand years or as a day and so forth, you know, it, the teaching of the day of the Lord. This is the teaching of Papias, Justin Martyr, presumably, presumably Polycarp, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Lactanatius, Hippolytus, subsequent fathers of the first generations after the apostles. But very quickly, a shift took place. Somewhere along the line, the teaching changed. And people were taught that prophecies about Israel in the Bible were meant to be symbolic of the church. That the kingdom is the church and that the kingdom of heaven refers to being part of the church and going to heaven when you die. And that our future hope is actually a spiritual hope and not a physical one to be tied with this world. And it begins around, this message starts to become very strong around the time of Eusebius. You know who Eusebius is? the church historian Eusebius, the scribe of Constantine, Constantine being the first Christian emperor, because we already had a kingdom. Its name was Rome. And around the time of Eusebius, church theologians were ridiculing people who read biblical prophecies about Israel and the coming kingdom, literally. They referred to uh, belief in a literal coming kingdom as Jewish nonsense. I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, We'll start with Origen. He's before Eusebius for sure, but uh, Origen is actually, Origen's great. He's considered to be one of the most important theologians of the church. He's a fantastic philosopher, born in the late second century, taught uh, in the Christian community of Alexandria. Origen is is a mystic. Uh, He's he's trying to integrate Greek philosophy into into a a, a interpretation of the New Testament, but when it comes to the kingdom, here's what Origen says, says about the kingdom, about those who take the kingdom literally. He says, Such are the views of those who, while believing in Christ, understand the divine scriptures in a sort of Jewish sense. And what he means by in a, in, in a sort of Jewish sense. What does he mean by a Jewish sense? He means literally. Those who, who, who understand the divine scriptures in a sort of Jewish sense, drawing from them nothing worthy of divine promises. So he ridicules the idea of an actual fulfillment of the prophecies associated with the promised land and the prophecies about the Jews returning to the land of Israel and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and so forth. Everything you're basically reading in the prophecy argues that a belief in the literal fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies about the land was Jewish mythology. Here's what he says. He says, now we're talking geography here, okay? Both Judea and Jerusalem were the shadow and figure of that pure land, goodly and large, in the pure region of heaven, in which is the heavenly Jerusalem. And it is in reference to this Jerusalem the one in heaven, that the apostle spoke. For he had found a truth which formed no part of the Jewish mythology. 
So Origen taught that all the prophecies about the kingdom needed to be taken allegorically. And this one's the first, the Origen's the first that I can, can find that takes this approach to the kingdom. He said, Moreover, there are many prophecies spoken of the people of Israel and Judah which relate what is going to happen to them. And when we think of the extraordinary promises recorded about these people, is it not clear that they demand an allegorical interpretation? What he means when he says they demand an allegorical interpretation is that it would be preposterous to believe that God will really keep his promises to the literal Jewish people. Now you might think, okay, but how would a guy like this, how would an amillennialist get around the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation, we just saw, it clearly teaches this thousand-year kingdom. Well, here's how. Same way, same way this works in China. As the church canonized the books of the New Testament, people wanted to leave the book of Revelation out. Why? Because of the kingdom. I'm going to show you a third century book review on the book of Revelation by someone named Gaius. Eusebius included it in his ecclesiastical history as a polemic against belief in a literal messianic era on earth. Here's the book review. He says, The author of the book of Revelation by means of revelations which he pretended were written by a great apostle, also, also falsely invented wondrous things as if they had been shown to him by angels, asserting that after the resurrection there would be an earthly physical kingdom of Christ in which men, again inhabiting Jerusalem, will experience physical desires and pleasures, being also an enemy to the divine scriptures, this... Uh, the forger who forged the book of Revelation, intending to deceive men, he said that there would be a space of a thousand years for celebrating wedding banquets. Ridiculous. So Gaius objects to the book of Revelation on the basis that it teaches, again, a literal physical kingdom as part of this carnal, fleshly world. You kind of sense Gnosticism here, dualism, uh, which places the spiritual and the physical in antithesis to one another. But unlike Gnosticism, which teaches that physicality and corporeality are inherently corrupt, Judaism comes along and teaches that everything God created is good. That God saw the universe that he had created, and he said, it's very, very good. And that the physical universe then, very good, and the spiritual and the physical are not separable from the Jewish perspective. Here's another of these uh, book reviews for you, okay? On, on the Revelation. This one's from Dionysus of Alexandria. Here's what he said. He said, the author of the book of Revelation intentionally affixed the name of John to his own forgery. For one of the doctrines that he taught was that Christ would have an earthly kingdom. And he was a hedonist, altogether sensual. For he conjectured that the kingdom would consist in those things that he craved for gratifying his own appetite and lust. Namely, there would be eating, drinking, and marrying. 
And he spoke of such things as he supposed these sensual pleasures might be presented in more decent terms, festivals, sacrifices, and the slaying of animal sacrifices. So again, same, same sort of approach. We go, uh, I want to sh- introduce you to Jerome, the translator of the Latin Vulgate. Jerome is a really important 5th century character. And an interesting thing about Jerome is he actually had contact with Jewish disciples as well. He had, he had contact with the community of the Nazarenes. But it didn't do him much good because he wrote commentaries on the prophets in which he said that anyone who takes the kingdom prophecies about the restoration of Israel literally is one who is a lover of the letter that kills Jerome said that anyone who takes the prophecy of Jerusalem's restoration in the kingdom literally falsely bears the name of Christ. And worse yet, has a Jewish soul, lacking only circumcision of the body. In other words, too Jewish. He said that belief in a literal kingdom on earth is Jewish madness. Since they seek to satisfy their gluttony, lust for marriage, and longing for circumcision, sacrifices, and Sabbath. You see a kind of a consistent theme (laughs) in these. um. Likewise, he correctly identified people who keep the Sabbath and and the the Torah-keeping Jewish Christians in those days and, and the Jewish believers as those who held to a literal kingdom. Jerome said, those who claim that the stock of faithful Israel in the church of Christ, this is Jewish Christians, should observe the ceremonies of the old law, also anticipate a golden Jerusalem, which will stand for a thousand years, where they will offer sacrifices and be circumcised, that they may sit on the Sabbath, sleep, become sated, drunk, rise to frolic. Their Sabbath observance amusement is offensive to God. So you find that throughout history, this is actually true, that this, the uh, Sabbath-keeping disciples also tend to be people who advocate in, uh, a literal interpretation. They tend to be um, premillennialist. Uh, this is something that, that runs consistently through uh, church history. But amillennialism has been the official view of the church at least since Augustine systematized it in the 4th and 5th century. Augustine is contemporary with Jerome, In his book, The City of God, Augustine teaches an allegorical interpretation that the kingdom commenced with the ascension of Messiah and that since then there have been two cities, two kingdoms on earth vying for control of the earth. The city of God, that is the church, and the city of men, that is the unbelievers, the wicked, and the idolatrous world. So here's how he puts it. He rejects the idea of people enjoying a kind of Sabbath rest, he says, for a thousand years. But he does admit, interestingly enough, Augustine admits that he himself used to believe this way. He says, I myself too once held this opinion. But as they assert that those who, when they rise again, shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets, furnished with an amount of meat and drink, such as not only to shock the feeling of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself, you know, eating Leviathan, (laughs) 
Such assertions can be believed only by the carnal. They who do believe them are called by the spiritual kilius, that is, thousanders. Thousanders, because I believe in this thousand-year messianic era, which we may literally reproduce by the name millenarians. It's like millennials. <laughs> it were a tedious process to refute the, these opinions point by point. Yes, it would be a tedious process to refute these opinions point by point because you'd have to take on every single one of the biblical prophets and pretty much everything the master said and, and all of the words of the apostles will well. So it would be a tedious affair to refute this point by point. He says, since it's a tedious process to refute these opinions point by point, we prefer to proceed to show how that passage of Scripture should be understood. And you can guess how it should be understood. It should be understood allegorically, right? So amillennialists believe that the kingdom began at the Ascension or at Pentecost or, and, and, and generally that, that the church is the kingdom. That's, and that's been the official view since Augustine. And in case, in case you think, this is not just a, this is not just, you know, like, a, it's not just the West, it's not just the, the Roman confession, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the, the Protestant church also, the Lutheran church, Reformed theology, even most Anabaptist groups are amillennial. John Calvin said that belief in a literal thousand-year kingdom is a fiction too childish to need refutation. And that brings us to our modern era. I mentioned dispensationalism as an exception. Outside of dispensationalism, the church has rejected the kingdom and denies the kingdom. For most of 1,800 years, we have allegorized the prophecies of the kingdom and, of course, the Torah along with it. And, and you know, I could give you examples like this for hours. It gets, it gets too tedious. <laughs> but even a f just a few months ago, my colleagues and I attended a debate between N.T. Wright and Rabbi Dr. Mark Kinzer, right? N.T. Wright, you know N.T. Wright? N.T. Wright is the leading conservative theologian of our day. I think that's fair to say. I, actually, I love reading N.T. Wright. As Yeshua would say, this one's not far from the kingdom. But as an Anglican, N.T. Wright is a millennial. So during the course of the debate, he was asked about this, and N.T. Wright stated he does not believe in a literal kingdom, although he'd like to, but he can't. Uh, he said uh, he does not believe in a literal kingdom with a geopolitical center in Jerusalem or that the Jewish people will have any special significance at the time of Christ's coming. And in fact, he went so far as to offer an answer to the question that the apostles asked Yeshua on the day of the ascension. Remember the question. The question was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember this? And the master answered, he said, said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority. But N.T. Wright offered a different answer. Here's what N.T. Wright says the answer was. He says, I am convinced 
that Jesus' answer to the question is yes, but. Yes, but this is the kingdom being restored to Israel because Israel's Messiah, Jesus, is enthroned as Lord of the world and sends out his messengers into all the world to announce that he is Lord. And that is what restoring the kingdom is all about. But the kingdom doesn't look like they thought it would. You know, because they, what, what did they think it was going to look like? It doesn't look like they thought it would, like a literal... Uh, fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? He says, the kingdom doesn't look like they thought it would. It doesn't look like a kingdom set up in a present geographical Jerusalem with Jesus and or his followers ruling the world from there. All right, how did this happen? How did, how did, we, how did we lose the kingdom? And I think it's pretty clear now. I mean, there's two things at work here. On the one hand, there's this uh, rejection about uh, this, this rejection of, of, of uh, the physicality of the world, the physical world, and, it's, and, and setting it in antithesis to the spiritual. Say, so can't, there can't be physicality. The, the kingdom has to be something spiritual. But more to the point, the kingdom is just too Jewish. I mean, we've already seen that amillennial anti-kingdom interpretations of the early Gentile church were squarely based on the assumptions of replacement theology. So not only did replacement theology nullify the Torah and cancel Israel's relationship with God, it also dispensed with the kingdom. It had to. I mean, just follow the very simple logic. One, Replacement theology teaches that the church replaces Israel, right? Okay, two, the Bible's prophecies predict a future restoration of Israel, of the Jewish people, right? Three, therefore, the prophecies cannot be literally about Israel, about the Jewish people. They must be about the church, that's how it works. So the restoration of Israel in the kingdom is incompatible with replacement theology's dogma, which states that God is done with the Jews and has replaced Israel with the church. So to reconcile the Bible with replacement theology, the church had to jettison belief in a literal coming kingdom. How else could you reconcile the prophecies about Israel's restoration with the theology that God had rejected Israel forever and replaced her? And that is the answer to how the church lost the kingdom. And I want you to just think about this, and maybe it seems like I'm belaboring the point, but consider the great irony of our situation here as followers of this man. Our master, Yeshua, came preaching one message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent out his disciples with the exact same message. But for most of history, the majority of his followers have had no idea what the kingdom means because their theologians took it away. 
So what do they say about the second coming of Messiah? I mean, the amillennialist. What, what does the amillennialist ex- expect with the coming of the Messiah? Well, the amillennialist teaches that when the Messiah comes, he comes to take, you know, he comes to take the, the, Christ, the true Christians to heaven. And the dead will be raised uh, and taken to heaven with them. And there's no kingdom. Instead, under, under the dictates of replacement theology, the kingdom of heaven means, you know, heaven in the sky, and, and that's become the new gospel message, as if Jesus was teaching people about how to go to heaven, like he came to teach people how to go to heaven. And for most of Christian history, the vast majority of his followers then have had no idea what the kingdom is, and because of that, no idea what his real message was. And I'm thinking, as a disciple of Yeshua, I find that troubling. That should trouble us. So does eschatology really matter? I believe it does. Eschatology determines the target for which your faith is aiming and the destination of the road on which you are traveling. So if you're shooting an arrow at the wrong target, you'll probably hit it. And if you set out toward the wrong destination, you will probably arrive there. It's important for us to know where we're going and for what we are working because our eschatology will shape the character and quality of our faith and our path of discipleship. And it will impact the choices we make all the way through life. Moreover, if we have the eschatology wrong in this case, we have the gospel wrong. And and maybe that's why I feel so passionately about this message and about this mission. It's about restoring the original gospel message and restoring the reputation of our Master Yeshua. Torah Club is the world's fastest-growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. In the book of Acts, it says, and I quote, So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for it. Yeshua said we should seek it first, and of course there's a lot packed into that statement, which could be its own podcast, but as we have learned from Daniel here, many followers of Jesus are not even looking. And for the most part, I mean, I guess we have to ask, why would they be? It's, it's not some theological rebellion. Uh, as I quoted from the lecture in the beginning, their theolog- theologians took it away. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, what, what was your takeaway? What was your... Your sort of big, um, big moment of, from the the lecture. Well, my favorite part of all of this is the history. 
I love, I love to teach and learn from history because it's very hard to argue history. And not that we're in, in the business of arguing uh, in any way, but we want to establish a historical trajectory that because the Bible is a supernatural text. I think we can all agree on that. In one way, it communicates messages that are incredibly simple to hear and understand. But in other ways, if you don't understand the, the history, the culture, the context, the theological expectations of the intended audience, you're, you're missing so much or, or you're changing something or you're ignoring the powerful message that the Bible is speaking and the Jewish expectation and again, just like I said, the church isn't monolithic. We certainly have to be careful saying the Jewish expectation because mm-hmm. that is, you know, it's, it is it is also not monolithic. But for many, many Jews, let's simplify that, many, many Jews, and especially those who followed Yeshua, who saw him as the Messiah sent to deliver Israel out of the hands of oppression. We're going to re- he's going to restore the glory of Israel. He's going to bring the peace of the kingdom that the prophets promised. They absolutely got the message that he was bringing. Mm. And it's obvious, I think, Reuben, that that message was clear even to the early writers in the church and to later influential thinkers who continued to battle against this interpretation. And you ask, why did they? Well, it's that word we can't seem to get away from when we have discussions like this. Supersessionism, right? Replacement theology, another concept that that so many believers are ignorant of. And I mean, I don't mean any insult by that use of ignorant. I just mean unaware. But But that is at the root of the lost kingdom. If Israel is not in the story anymore, these things in the Bible cannot mean what they say, and that is absolutely tragic. But the bottom line, when you read the text as as Yeshua meant, you know, if you read it like he really meant these things, what he said in his parables, his teaching, even the way he taught his disciples to pray, and that's still us today, we should have a great, great excitement and expectation for this very real, very awesome kingdom of God that he's bringing back. And, and if I might borrow once more from the vision that drives our work here, daily laboring toward the kingdom of heaven, a promise right. of what is to come. There's this interesting header just before Matthew 6.25 in the New American Standard that reads, The Cure for Anxiety. And, you know, our listeners will remember that's where Jesus is telling us not to worry about our life. But what I love and what's relevant to to this episode, to this lecture, is how he concludes that bit of teaching with very famous words. According to our rabbi, our Messiah, the cure for anxiety, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. So that was a probably a bit of a ramble, but I mean, I think it was completely and absolutely amazing to get this historical context. That was, that was my takeaway. What, what, what did you get out of this? You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I think you said it so well and restoring this idea of this concept, this belief of the kingdom is life-changing. It really puts um, what our work is here on earth uh, puts it into perspective. And I, I love what you, what you said there, man. Well, 
I, I, I think we, we think alike. Maybe that's why we get to do this together. <laughs> Someday we'll have to bring people that we think nothing alike on here and see how that goes. But, you know, anyway, hope that you have enjoyed uh, this taste of the kingdom and that today will be a day where you seek first his kingdom. So thanks for joining us on, on Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. Shalom, shalom. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review, along with a five-star rating, wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Damian Eisner, along with Ruben Ramos. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you're interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to TorahClub.org. Until next time, Shalom. Let his word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover you and me Let like the waters cover the sea.